We'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges, if you will, book of Judges. If you are in first grade through fifth grade, so SBC kids or our children's church, then you can be dismissed at this time. For everyone else, take your Bibles, turn to, like I said, Judges. We're going to be in chapter one here in just a few moments. This morning, we're going to take a look at both the character and nature of God, but then also take a very, what I believe to be a sobering look at sometimes the character and nature of man in the book of Judges. One of the great blessings that I've had this year uh, as we've been working through this series of His Story, Our Story, excuse me, Our Story, His Story, um, is that we have the opportunity to see uh, really the beauty of how God works. And the way he works in one person's life is different from the way he works in another person's life. And uh, it's great to be able to see the way God brings a person into a relationship with him. This morning, uh, as we talk through Judges, uh, there's a couple of things that I want to point out here at the very beginning. Uh, One of those is just a couple of of constants that we see in the book of Judges, okay? We're not going to look at the whole book itself. We're going to just land here for a little bit in this period of Judges, and I'm going to talk for a moment, a few moments here about what this period of Judges looks like. But one of the constants that we see all throughout the book of Judges is the character and nature of God, and that God never, ever changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But then the other constant that we see in the book of Judges is that nothing in the book of Judges is constant. In fact, uh, over and over again, all you see is change after change after change after change among the nation of Israel. Um, In fact, they go from hot to cold to lukewarm over and over and over again in their faith. One day their faith looks like it's really strong and they're ready to, to go and, 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 and conquer the land for God. And then the next, they've completely turned around and they are worshiping uh, other idols that, that are, on, are, are completely dishonoring to God. And this is kind of a pattern that we see all throughout the book of Judges. What's clear to us now today as we look back on these people in the book of Judges is that they were never satisfied. In fact, their intense desire to please themselves fueled in them a willingness to do whatever was necessary to get what they wanted, because they wanted what they wanted and not necessarily what God wanted. However, if you really think about it, we realize that their attitude towards God and towards the things of God are often very similar to our attitude towards God. I know that's kind of the story of my life. Oftentimes, I go through periods in which I am on fire for God, I am spiritually hot, I'm close to God, and then it seems like the next day I fall flat on my face and I am just as cold as I can be, and then maybe sometimes I come back to lukewarm, but it's the cycle that we tend to go through. And what I want to talk about today is what is it that might lead to this cycle, and we're going to look at how the people of Israel in the book of Judges, what led them to go through that cycle over and over and over again. Sometimes I ask myself the question of, why is it that one moment I'm strong in my faith, the next I'm falling flat on my face in sin? Or another question that maybe you ask sometimes is, why is it that it seems like other people have it all together when I can barely stand on my own two feet? Folks, I will tell you from the very beginning here that this idea that somebody has it all together is nothing short of a lie. Yes, there are some people in this life who have more peace and joy and and for one reason or another, but there is no one because we live in the sin-cursed world that has it all together. And anybody that tries to tell you that they do have it all together and they have all the answers to life figured out, they're nothing short of a liar and a fake, just to be completely honest, okay? We are all in this boat of living in the sin-cursed world together. That scenario that I just talked about going from hot to cold, lukewarm and all over the place, 
um, is, is really the story of Israel all throughout the book of Judges. And we realize, especially as we look at what we're looking at today, that their story is oftentimes our story. We're going to look at one key thing today that kept these people from having a strong and vibrant relationship with God. All right? Now, don't forget, the one constant that remains all throughout is God. He never changes, ever. I'm going to uh, actually begin today with, a, um, with an illustration that may make you kind of laugh. Um, at least it makes me laugh sometimes when I think about Marvel superhero movies. How many of you enjoy the Marvel superhero movies? Be honest, okay? Less of you than I thought. Uh, well, the movie Thor is no exception to that. Now, I have not seen the Avengers Endgame movie yet, and so if you have, don't spoil it for me because I don't know what happens yet. I've been intentional not to look it up and see. But uh, the movie Thor, there's one scene in there that you would probably recognize, okay? Here's a picture of Thor, by the way, um, just so you have this mental picture of who we're talking about. Thor is um, a part of the realm of Asgard, okay? Asgard is some extraterrestrial realm. By the way, this is fiction. Remember that. Hold on to that. Science fiction, okay? He is a part of this other realm, and he has a father by the name of Odin. Odin is the king of Asgard. With this one particular scene near the beginning of the movie, um, Odin is about to pass on the kingship to Thor and name him the next king of Asgard. Well, when he's about to do that, there's some fighters from another realm, I don't know, uh, uh, Jotunheim, realm of Jotunheim, that come in and they attack the realm of Asgard. And so Thor's, Thor's kingship uh, ceremony, if you will, is interrupted. They fight off these fighters, and, and Thor, in an effort to kind of assert his authority and assert his, his leadership, says, we need to go attack Jotunheim. And the king Odin says, no, absolutely not. We have no reason to do so. Um, that's a, we have a peace treaty with them. We'll talk with them later about this. And Thor, uh, however, grabs his closest friends, and they go to the realm of Jotunheim to attack it. And um, long story short, it ends up going very badly for them. And if King Odin had not shown up when he did to rescue Thor and his companions, then Thor and his companions probably would have been killed. Well, they get back to the realm of Asgard, and uh, the king tells Thor, you are not fit to be king at this time because of your disobedience and your lack of respect for, um, for the land and for me as king, you are not going to be named the next king of Asgard at this time. Well, that begins somewhat of a down, downward spiral for Thor, and um, honestly, he affects, uh, this, this occurrence affects many people. And um, a little bit later on, we realize, he realizes that um, what he has done, his actions of disobedience and disrespect have drastically affected many people. Okay, now, what happened there was Thor disobeyed, and it led to some massive repercussions all over the universe, all right? Go watch the movie if you want to see what those were. But later, Thor realizes what has taken place. If you think about it, what took place here with Thor and his attitude, his response is very similar to that of the nation of Israel. And in many ways, the, the result is the same. And I think you'll see some parallels as we work through our passage here together. Now, we're going to go to Judges chapter 1. You're there in your Bibles. We're going to start reading here in just a moment. Before we do, let me make one, one comment to help understand the context. 
God has given the land of Canaan to the Israelites. He brought them out of the land of Egypt, and he has given it to the Israelites. He's saying, you go occupy that land, drive out the inhabitants. They are an ungodly people. They are a wicked people, and they refuse to obey me. Go drive them out. This is your land, okay? So that's where we pick up here in Judges chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, after the death of Joshua, pause there for a second. You remember who Joshua was? Strong leader, right? Led the people well. They conquered. Last week we talked about Jericho. They conquered Jericho. Well, Joshua at this point is dead. We see the account, the narrative of the death of Joshua in chapter 2 a little bit later. It's almost like the author's going back in time a little bit. He's saying, after the death of Joshua, we continue reading, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us among the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and, they, and, and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and, cut, and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Kind of interesting thing there, isn't it? Verse 7, and Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Now, folks, from the very beginning of Judges here, you might think, hey, this isn't so bad. Right? They're, doing a, they're doing a good job of driving out the people. They're doing exactly as God has commanded them to do. And, and you're right. To be quite honest, they're making a pretty strong statement in doing so, especially there with the story of Adonai Bezek. This is one of the most wicked kings in the land, and he's captured. And, um, and, and he was captured, and, and honest, what would take place, history would tell us, that what took place before this, when Adonai Bezek himself would go and conquer other lands and territories, he would cut off the thumbs and the big toes of those kings that he conquered. It was a disgrace to them. And now, in the same way that he disgraced other people, so um, he is being disgraced, Adonai Bezek's response is quite simply, just like I did to others, so God has repaid me. He understood that it's God's judgment that's being carried out on him at this time. So right away, we see, we see the people of Israel on a high, right? They're obeying God. They're following his command to drive out the people. They are spiritually hot, but not for long. Because then you get down to verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But then here's a statement. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Verse 20, and Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Folks, do you ever feel like um, things are going really, really good in your spiritual life? You're, you're spiritually hot, like I talked about before. You are on fire, you're ready to go, you're obeying God, you're doing exactly what he has commanded you to do. It's like the song says, you're reading your Bible, praying every day. Read your Bible, pray every day. Remember that song? You learned it in grade school. You, you're following God, you're staying close to the heart of God, you are, you are living in holiness. Everything is going so great, in fact, that you, when you do something that's, that's slightly bad, even a slight disobedience to God, you kind of dismiss it and you think, you know what, I'm good, 
I've I've been mostly good in, in my spiritual life, and that's good enough. I feel like I do that all the time, right? Things are going great. I'm, great, I'm doing a great job of, of, of minding my P's and Q's spiritually. But then something happens where I, and, and this is for sake of example, maybe I lose my temper just a little bit, just a little bit. And I just kind of dismiss it because I've been doing great. I don't need to worry about that little act of sin in my life because that's exactly what that was, a little act of, of sin. I think it's all good. I've been a good boy in all the other areas of my life. The problem is that that is not how God works. That's not at all how God works. God requires holiness, period. Across the board, period. Holiness and obedience to Him. That's what happens with the Israelites, right? They're doing great. We skipped a whole lot of verses there, and and if we'd have read those verses, you see all the good things that the nation is doing to follow God's command. They're driving out people after people, but then there's a couple of lines that are concerning. Here's, Here's the first one. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Here's a second line. They did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. There's a reference there in that first line to the chariots of iron. History tells us that some of the oldest or earliest iron workers was a, a people who lived in the plains. They were called the Philistines. The Philistines, um, because they were not driven out at this point, became a thorn in the side of Israel for many, 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 many years. You remember reading, even David and, and other kings later, they were fighting against the, the Philistines. They were in bondage to the Philistines over and over and over again. And, and, and they are that, that, that thorn in the side of the Israelites because they weren't driven out when they should have been at the beginning of the book of Judges. The excuse that's given there is that it's all because of these chariots of iron. Israel doesn't have chariots of iron. They probably didn't have chariots at all. So there's no denying that it would have been a huge undertaking for them to defeat these guys, right? That would have been a a tough thing for them to do. But listen, from everything else that I've seen of God, and you think back to what we talked about last week with the defeating of the people at Jericho in an incredible way, in crazy way, everything that I've seen of God, there is nothing that is impossible when God is on your side. And when God is for you, if it's done according to his will and his purpose. Now, folks, there's a big difference between could not and would not. What we see there is that they could not. You say you could not, it means that there's absolutely no way that whatever it is you're trying to accomplish can happen. Or to put it simply, you have no chance of success. That's what could not means. It's not, there's not the ability to do this. The problem here is that God doesn't command people to do something that he doesn't also provide a way to make happen. If he tells you to do something, he's going to make a way for it to take place. Now, the confusing thing is, is that we're told there in that verse that the Lord was with these people, but even in that, they could not drive out the inhabitants. Folks, that tells me that somewhere there's a little bit of sin. You remember Achan? We kind of skipped over him. We were in Jericho last week. We were in Judges this week. Remember Achan? There was an area of sin in his life, and God could not honor the nation of Israel when there was sin in the camp. In reality, it wasn't that they could not. It was that they would not drive out the inhabitants of the land. They could have done it. Yeah. We saw what God did last week with Jericho. Of course they could have done it. The problem is that they would not do it. For one reason or another, they would not do it. 
Folks, how often do we have some level of success in being spiritually hot? And then all of a sudden, a small sin or a small inconsistency comes in and we simply dismiss it as being trivial or insignificant. That's a little thing. I don't have to worry about that. It's a little thing. Folks, any sin, any inconsistency with what God has called us to do is not trivial. It's not insignificant. It's a big thing. It's a big deal. Let's go back to the story here. We're seeing a slight, a gradual shift where the Israelites were hot to the point of nobody could stand in their way as they're they're doing exactly what God's called them to do. All of a sudden, right in the middle of being hot, there's a moment of mediocrity, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean or its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gazar. So the Canaanites lived in Gazar among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Ketron or inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became, forced, became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alam, or Akzib, or Helba, or of, if, uh, here we go. I knew this would happen right here. I even practiced this, I promise. <laughs> or of Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nephtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemash, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, and they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. Folks, now all of a sudden, they've gone from really hot, right, to lukewarm or slightly hot, slightly cold. They're doing some good things, right? They're doing some things that God has has called them to do, except they aren't defeating anybody, the way that God has called them to defeat. They're not defeating anybody. They move from being in a position of complete surrender to God to a state of apathy. And by disobeying God, they've moved to direct opposition to God. Folks, he commanded them to drive out the people. And at first, they did a great job of obeying him. Now they're no longer listening. They're no longer obeying God. They're living in direct disobedience to him. One of the things we find in this passage that is very clear to us is that there are some, there's some results of disobedience. There's some results of disobedience. Here's the first one. Small decisions of disobedience, if not repented of, lead to large-scale disaster. Small decisions of disobedience lead to large-scale disaster. Look at chapter 2, Judges chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through, um, I'll just read verses 1 through 3. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. You have not obeyed my voice, is what we find there. 
Listen, I gave you this commandment to do this, but you have not obeyed my voice. Folks, the people are going to live from this day forward with other nations coming in from time to time, and they're going to war against them, and they're going to defeat them, and they're going to bring them into slavery. We're going to see more of that here in just a moment. The Canaanites that were not driven out became a major problem for these people. And it's not that they couldn't drive them out, it's that they wouldn't drive them out. Folks, remember before I told you that God does not lead a person to do something that he doesn't also equip them to do. He is going to make a way for it to happen. What areas in your life right now, here's a question for you, what areas in your life right now are you going against God's commandment and you're saying, you know what, I I can't drive that out of my life. I can't drive that out of my life, you say. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, con- a constant desire to, to, to lie, to build yourself up. Or maybe it's not being able to forgive somebody when you know you need to forgive them for something they've done to you. Or maybe it's trouble keeping your mind and your heart pure from sexual temptation. Or maybe it's any, really any other area of sin. But whatever it is, you're lying to yourself when you say, I can't drive that out of my life, when in reality, you won't drive it out of your life. You want what you want, not what God wants. I want to live in my sin. I want to live in in, in a state of being comfortable myself, is what you're saying. You tell God, I can't, but what God is saying, oh, but you can. In my strength, you can do this. You can drive this out. Folks, you see, for a period of time, the Israelites were successful in doing what God had commanded them to do for a period of time. When he told them to do something, they obeyed. They were operating under the strength and power that God is providing them. But then something took place where they started elevating themselves and they started doing what they wanted to do and following their desires. And what took place was a removal of the strength and the power of God from their, from their midst. They started saying, you know what? I'm going to operate under my strength and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm sure it'll still come about the way that God wants it to take place. But that is not how God works. Folks, the result is failure. It's it's a failure to drive out these people who are occupying their land. It's a failure to create an atmosphere where God alone is worshipped. It's a failure to do what is necessary to follow and pursue God alone. What they've now done is allowed for other gods to come into their midst and sin to be among them. Folks, that's not what God called them to do. Same thing happens for us today. Right? Small decisions of disobedience quickly lead to large-scale disaster. That one little tiny lie that you told soon turns into much bigger lies, and after a while, it spirals out of control. Right? That one little yes to looking up porn on your phone or on your computer or, or seeking out that sexual temptation soon turns into an addiction that forever affects every single relationship that you've got around you. That one little word that might seem harmless to you may soon begin to compromise the language that comes out of your mouth on a regular basis. Or what about this? That one little, um, hey, did you hear what what Jane said? It's gossip. And after a while, that gossip begins to spiral out of control where you have forever damaged the reputation of uh, of an innocent person. Folks, that is how sin starts to sneak into our lives. And and it's these small little levels of or areas of disobedience that then soon lead to large-scale disaster. It's just like the Israelites. You may have already begun the process of making small decisions that lead to large-scale disaster. And you think, it hadn't done it yet. But folks, it will. Anytime sin is allowed to camp out in your life, it will lead to disaster. 
So the question becomes, how do I reverse that? How do I get rid of that sin that is in my life? How do I get rid of those small areas of disobedience? And honestly, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about ways that that we could do that, but I'm going to put it real simply, okay? Number one is saying yes and no at the same time. Yes to allowing the gospel of Jesus Christ to free you from the sins that you find yourself going back to over and over again. We're going to talk more about that here in just a moment, okay? But then saying no to disobedience, to the things that you know go against the will of God. Folks, when sin, the temptation to sin comes up in your life, you have a choice. I can say yes to this or I can say no. And if you want to get rid of the little small areas of disobedience or sin in your life, it starts with you saying no to that sin. You're either constantly moving away from God or you're moving toward God. You are never staying still. You see, the people of Israel thought that they could be apathetic and they could stay right where they were with God and that God's blessing would be on them and they could could defeat anybody that, that, that they needed to defeat. But that is never the way it is. Folks, when there are small areas of sin in our life, we are moving away from God. We're not moving toward Him. We can only move towards God. We can only be uh, in, in close communion with God when there is no sin in our lives. I want you to think about this. If you're having trouble making the right decisions to obey and follow Christ, it might be that you haven't submitted to walk by faith and allow Him to do the mighty work in you that needs to be done. The work that you can't do yourself, but that God has to do inside of you. Maybe you're trying to hang on and do all of it yourself. But folks, can I tell you that those little areas of disobedience are going to lead to large-scale disaster in the future. You say, well, what is that large-scale disaster that took place for the Israelites? And I'm glad you asked. Um, Look at at Judges chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 12. It's a perfect example of this, a perfect picture for us. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they, obey, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Folks, the next result of disobedience that we see is that disobedience leads to gods that enslave. Disobedience leads to gods that enslave. Folks, there's a big difference between the God that saves and the gods that enslave. A big difference. They abandoned the Lord. That's what the beginning of verse 12 there says. They abandoned the Lord. I've got people who sit in my office occasionally and um, they are in bondage to sin. There's no other way to say it. They are in bondage to sin and it's got a strong hold on their lives. And oftentimes we can, we can trace that sin back to where on a, on a, on a semi-repeated basis, they kept saying yes to the little areas of sin. I'm okay if I do this little dabble in this little area of sin. It's not going to affect me long term. But then over time, what takes place is this repeated disobedience leads to that large-scale disaster. And it leads to a God that enslaves them. Honestly, sometimes that is a God of lying. Where they they just lie repeatedly over and over and over again. and And they just can't get past that. They say, I don't know how to get past lying on a regular basis. Other people say, you know what? I don't know how to get away from the porn that is absolutely dominating my life. 
Folks, in reality, it came because of such small decisions in the beginning and not turning away from those small decisions. Folks, the the Israelites decided that the gods of their enemies were more important than the God who had led them out of Egypt and led them to a nation where they would be free to live in communion with him. They decided they wanted themselves. Folks, the same thing happens to us today. We allow the gods of power, of sex, of of pride, of relationships, of money to come into our lives and pretty soon we become enslaved to them. The Israelites enslaved themselves to the very same people that God commanded them to drive out. And in the same way, we as believers and followers of Jesus today have a responsibility to drive something out. Just like God commanded the Israelites to drive these people out, to drive the sin out of the land. He has commanded us to drive sin out of our lives. I love uh, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Here's how it starts. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, I'll pause there for just a second, okay? Put to death what is earthly in you. Folks, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to put some things to death because we are not of this world. We are of another world, right? We've been called to live as followers of Jesus in expectation of eternity with him in heaven. We are to live in terms of another world. So put to death what is earthly in you. What are those things? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Folks, these are the things that we are to be driving out of our lives as believers. Paul makes it very clear that these areas of sin have got to go. The Israelites were to drive out the nations that worshiped other gods to make room for the one true God. Can I tell you that as an individual here today, you are to do the very same thing. You are to drive out all the other gods that may come up in your life to leave room to worship the one true God. There's a big difference between the God who saves and the gods that enslave. The gods that enslave don't care about you. Those gods that enslave, they don't care anything at all about you. In fact, Satan just uses those things to rob God of the honor and the glory that he alone is worthy of. He enslaves you. Satan enslaves us to those things. Our very lives are to be image bearers of our creator, lives of holiness. But when we are captured by these other gods that enslave us, we cannot be image bearers of our God. Folks, those gods have no care for you at all. But if you look in Judges chapter 2, verse 16, I want to show you something completely different. I want to show you a God who cares. Here's what that verse says. Remember what's taking place. The slavery is taking place. But then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. God, out of compassion and love, made a way for the enslaved to become free. And even though they had rejected him, he still provided salvation for them. 
Think about that over and over and over again. These people have rejected him, but he provides salvation for them. And the same thing applies for us today. We've been commanded to live this this holy life that's set apart with a new nature. We're commanded to live in the freedom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet over and over and over again, we reject the very God who created us and the very God who loves us. I go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Actually, go before that, and what you find is that we were pursuing ourselves in this world. We were following after Satan. But then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Folks, the Israelites were in bondage to the people around them. They were in bondage to their own sin. Did you know that you were born in bondage, in slavery to your own sin? You say, yeah, I knew that. Do you really? Think about that for a minute. You were born in bondage to your sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, sent Jesus Christ to earth to die in my place and to die in your place so we could have life through Jesus. I want to ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. If you were to continue reading through the book of Judges, something you would see as a reoccurring theme is that the people, time after time after time, even in the middle of God being faithful to them, decided they wanted to pursue their own desires and their interests, and they abandoned the Lord. But even though they do that time after time, God is faithful to save. God is faithful to save. There's a couple of different ways that this might apply to you today. Number one is if there has never been a time in your life in which you surrendered to Jesus. That you never affirmed the fact that you were born a sinner, apart from God, cast off from God, not in a relationship with him. Never repented of your sin. Folks, I um, don't know if that's your story, but I can imagine that, actually I know without a doubt, that God is calling you. God is calling you to come out of that sin and live in the freedom that he provides. And if that's you today, then I want to encourage you to find someone that is close to you. You can find me after the service, and I can show you what it looks like to get rid of the sin that is in your life and come into a relationship with God. Then there's others in this room who maybe you've been trying for so long to get rid of a certain sin or to get rid of sin in general in your life. And you've been saying, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. And right now, you might be kind of crying out, I I want to know how to do this, to get rid of the sin. And folks, I I want to encourage you to take some time right now to search your heart. And first of all, figure out if there is anything like that in your life. Any way in which you're being disobedient to God. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you the ways that you're being disobedient. But then seek out some help afterwards. First of all, go to God and say, God, would you give me the strength to do this? And then come to me or one of the other pastors or somebody else around you and say, hey, I need help getting rid of some sin in my life. 
want you to remember as we close the two results of disobedience. Number one, small decisions of disobedience lead to large-scale disaster. But then number two, disobedience will lead you to a God that enslaves you. Folks, as we get ready to pray and then go into a time of worship in a moment, you do business with God in any way you need to. Our Father, I thank you for our time here in your word today. The example that we've got of the way sin can lead to such large-scale disaster. And Lord, the reality is it's probably not going to lead us to slavery to another people or, Lord, to another person. But our sin will lead us to slavery of some kind. So God, would you help us to know what it looks like to be in a right relationship with you, to be close with you? Father, we love you, but we only love you because you first loved us and you sent Jesus to die in our place. Thank you for that. It's in his holy and precious name I pray. Amen.